really another direction. I was actually going to do, have somebody else in mind to, to do tonight. And yesterday I was standing talking to one of the pastors and something just dropped down in me. And I know when that happens. And I know that that's the Spirit of God telling me this is what I want you to do. And it just grew in me. And uh, uh, I, I had forgotten what I had ministered the last time until I went to get a title. I had a title, but the title uh, really didn't it fit, but it was not one you'd read and you'd recognize what the message was about. So I came up with another title, and I had to go back and look at the last one thing I did, and it, it's interesting because it fit right in with this. And so um, I really believe that there's some things that God wants to talk to us about. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands right now, but how many of you have ever diff- been through a difficult time? <laughs> there are many of you going through very difficult times right now. Some of some of you are going through the most challenging time of your life. And I, I really felt impressed to read that scripture to you this morning, this, the, the, before the start of the service, at the start of the service, because we've got to keep our eyes on the God who will bring us through. The Bible never promises that you won't go through difficult times, but it does promise that He will bring you through it. But you've got to keep your eyes on Him and not get not get weighed down by what you're going through. And I know that's hard to do because I've gone through some difficult times. I've gone through some challenges this summer. And, and almost everything that somebody goes through in this church, I go through to some measure when I hear about it. I feel it. I feel the weight of it. And, and, and so this is a very challenging time for people, but we've got to keep our eyes on... Our, God's not been taken by surprise. You may have been taken by surprise what happened to you, but God wasn't taken by surprise. So it's important to keep our eyes on Him. And we're going to talk tonight a little bit about, about um, uh, well, the title that I, I had for this, I'll share with you, which was Plugging Holes. But the title we're going to give to this is Getting Things in Order. Let me share with you what I mean by this and what we're talking about. Uh, the Bible talks an awful lot about suffering, a lot, an awful lot about uh, uh, challenges and afflictions and difficult things. You just read King David's life. And it will give you a lot, a lot of the Psalms, what the Psalms say about that. The Psalm we read, Psalm 34, was written by King David. And as I've shared with you, he didn't write that sitting in, in, his, in, in writing his doctoral the, uh, thesis at, at the you know, graduate school of theology. He wrote that as a shepherd boy. Actually, those he wrote because he had been anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. And then the existing king didn't want to be replaced so he took all of the army of Israel, all of their resources, all of their training, all of their money, and went after this little shepherd boy to destroy him. And you can imagine what went through his mind. I mean, God's called me. God supernaturally appointed me, made it clear to me this is what I was supposed to do, and all hell's broken loose, literally, against him to kill him and destroy him. So sometimes we have this misconception that because I'm in God's will, everything all the doors are going to open up and everything's, the devil's going to get out of our way. Oh no, very often that's when they close and they begin to line up against you. So there, there's two basic reasons that the Bible teaches you of why you go through difficult times. One is because you're doing something right and the other is because you're doing something wrong. <laughs> well, Pastor, how do I tell the difference? That's the knack. I had a... a, a senior partner of one of the law firms I worked in years ago who was very much interested in the star market. And I was a young, young buck, a young lawyer, and we would eat lunch with him, and he would tell us his secrets of how he made his thousands and millions of dollars. And he sat with me one day, he says, John, I want to tell you the secret of making money in the stock market. And oh boy, I had my pencil and paper. I was ready to write this down. He says, here's the secret. You buy low and you sell high. I started right. I said, well, yeah, obviously. I said, how do you know when it's low and how do you know when it's high? He says, ah, that's the trick. <laughs> that's what it's about. There's much written about, if you look in the, in the book of Job, it's, a lot of it is about suffering and, and what this righteous man went through. And you have his three wonderful friends who come and give their opinions of why he's going through what he's going through. And we, people have opinions of why you're going through. You may have opinions of why you're going through what you're going through. But there's one particular aspect that I really felt, and this is what dropped down inside of me, uh, to, to look at tonight. Some, we, first of all, we live in a fallen world. When God created this world, when God created this material around this universe, He did not create it with affliction in it. 
If you look in the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything God's made, he stepped back and said, that's good. That's good. Now, God's a good God, so when God says it's good, that doesn't mean there's a trick involved somewhere. If God says it's good, it was good. And then out of this good that God created, he took a separate place and he made it a garden of delight and named it Eden, which means place of delight. And he placed his man and then his woman in that place. And everything in that cooperated with him. He had a job, he had an assignment, but all of the creation was designed to facilitate and help him and cooperate with him instead of fighting against him. But then in chapter 3, we know what happened is they disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, they opened a door and, and gave Satan authority in this world. Let's make it very simple. When God created this world, He put His man in charge of it and in essence made Him the God over this world. And then, But see, God, when He delegates authority, He doesn't take it back. So when He delegates it, He expects you to do it. Whether you do it or not, He gives it to you to do. And there will be an accounting for what He gives us responsibility for, whether we ever do it or not, or whether we ever discovered it or not. Because part of our responsibility is to discover what He's given us to do. And He'll help you do that. And so what happens is, Satan comes in the garden to tempt them. They disobey God. That's going to be important for us. And when they did that, they took the authority that God had given them and turned around and they gave that authority to Satan. So Satan, from this point on, is referred to as the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls him the God of this world. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, one of the temptations is said, all the authority over this earth is mine. You just bow your knee and I'll give it to you. Well, if he didn't have the authority to give it to Jesus, it would never have been a temptation. So it must have been his to give. So when the world looks around and says, well, I don't know, how can this be a good God? Look at the mess that's going on. That's assuming God's in charge. Have you ever bought a new car? Some of you may not have, but some of you bought a new car. When you get that car and they hand you the keys, that car looks like and performs the way the manufacturer intended it. So if you want to know what a Ford Focus is intended to be like by the manufacturer, you go in the showroom and you look at the way the manufacturer made it. But you look at that same car four years later after having been in your hands, <laughs> driven around through New England winters, left out in the parking lot at Walmart, and somebody goes, bang, ding, hits potholes, got rust in it, now you look at it and say, boy, Ford really doesn't think much of cars. Look at the terrible job they made in making this car. Well, that wouldn't be fair, would it? Because the car's been in your hands or some, whoever else's hands for these four years. You can't tell what the manufacturer's like by looking what you've done with it. Well, the same is true of this world. This world is the result of man's stewardship, not God's stewardship. God created it was good. So we live in a world that's fallen. Then at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, we see that God says there's a curse released in the land right now. What was intended to cooperate with you and help you perform your job is now going to fight you. So if you just leave things alone right now, you notice they don't get better. They get worse. They rust. They get dirty. Why? Because all of creation is in a state of decay because it's under a curse. And that's what we were until Christ came. When Christ came, one of his assignments was to win back that authority. That's why he had to do it on the same way the first Adam did. He's the second Adam, the Bible says. So he had to come and be obedient. This is what Romans 5 talks about, where the first Adam was disobedient. He didn't have any extra help. He didn't have any... any he, he had the same thing the first Adam had. He had the Word of God and the choice to obey it. And where the first Adam chose to disobey it, the second Adam chose to obey it. When he did that, he came directly back under God's authority again. 
So he was no longer under Satan's authority the way the rest of the world was. Now, when you and I come to Christ, Colossians 1.13 says, 1.15 says, we've been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred over into the kingdom, the rulership, the authority of his beloved son. The problem is the church doesn't know we're no longer under the authority of Satan because as long as you still think you're under the authority of Satan, as long as you act like you're under the authority of Satan, as long as you talk like under his authority, you will have submitted yourself to his authority even though you don't have to. You following me? So one of the reasons trouble... So trouble's out there. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. So why are we shocked? How many of you have that scripture in your refrigerator? You don't need it. You don't need to exercise your faith for it. It's there. Just like if you throw a fish in the water, guess what? There's, he's going to get wet if you throw any in the water because the water's wet. In this world, there's trouble. There's a curse. But Jesus came to redeem us from that curse. Not just the curse that's listed in Deuteronomy 28. Paul talks in Romans 8. He says, all of creation groans and travails now. You can see it. I mean, the earthquakes, all of this is the world groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, Paul says. That's us. So while we're waiting on God, he's waiting for us to be revealed to the world of what he's done in us, which is why the devil wants to keep you ignorant of what God's done for us in Christ. And simply looking to the sweet by and by when we get to heaven. And that's wonderful. That's our living hope. But there's a lost world down here that needs help. And many of us need help. So one of the reasons is we live in a world where there's pressure against us and it will get into you because it's out there trying to stop you. Paul went through it. But it never stopped him. It never stopped him. It never stopped him. I mean, the man at one point was hauled out of the city for preaching the gospel, and they stoned him to death. Disciples come out. He's brought back alive, shakes the stones off, and goes back in the city. They threw him in jail. He preached the gospel wherever he went. He said, I'm in prison or in jail. He says, but the whole jail's saved, just about. They couldn't stop the word of God, no matter what they did with him. They couldn't stop him. So it came against him, but the more it came against him, the more he knew God loves him. Romans 8, 32 and 34 and on, is all about things God loves. Paul, he says, I am convinced. Again, like David, it wasn't sitting up in an ivory tower writing theology. It was because he's been there. He'd been through the fight. He'd been through the... He'd fought his good fight. He'd run his course. He'd finished his race, he said. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So there's pressure on us to stop, to quit. And you've got to determine, come hell or high water, and they'll both come, I'm not going to quit. And I'm not going to give in. And the answer, one of the answers is, and we've studied it in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. I was listening to some old teachings of Brother Hagin, and he t- talks about this story about years ago when they, f- they had these big dirigibles, the blimps that they got nowadays, but they were using these for transportation. And, and, and uh, they, what they would do is they'd bring them up to a, a, a pole that they were going to dock, and they would drop ropes down, and they had men on the ground who would jump up and grab the ropes, and they had enough men so they could pull this thing down and guide it up to the to post to be attached. Well, with one of these, they dropped the ropes down, the men, and something went wrong, and instead of the dirigible coming down, it went up. Now you've got these men holding onto the ropes, and they're going up off the ground. Some of them let go immediately. Others didn't realize what was going on. They held on till they got up to about 100 feet and then they couldn't hold on. They dropped off and they were hurt seriously or died. There was one man that kept holding on. 
And it kept going up and up and drifting away. They kept holding on and holding on, getting further out of sight. And finally they got it under control and they got it back down. And when they got it down, they brought him down and he let go and came down. And they said, and he was holding on for 45 minutes. And they said, how did you do that? He says, well, I held on for a little while and then I realized I can't do this. He says, so I realized what I needed to do. So I took the rope and I wrapped the rope around me and tied it. So he said, instead of me holding on to the rope, I had the rope hold on to me. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. If you're getting worn out, most likely it's because you're trying to hang on to the rope instead of letting the rope Isn't that good? Hold on to you. Praise God. But that's not the message. (laughs) The Lord gave me this picture this morning. I was trying to get... I said, well, Lord, there's there's a number of reasons why this stuff gets into our life. And I said, one of them is because we're in in a storm. And He gave me this picture of a boat in a storm. You get out... Some of you are boaters. You get out in a storm and the seas are high and the wind's blowing and water's coming in the boat. And you look around, you figure out, well, yeah, water's coming to the boat because the waves are coming over and the wind's blowing and water's getting in the boat. But there can be two reasons why water gets in the boat. And in a storm, we tend to look at the water that's coming over the sides of the boat. But there's another reason why water can get in a boat that's not so apparent, and that's because there could be a hole in the hull. In either case... The water from pressure from the outside is getting in. In the case of the wind, there's not anything you can do about it except endure it and keep bailing the water out. But if it's coming in through a hole in the hull, then you'd be smart to patch the hole. And here's the challenge. Many times in the storms of life, we're looking at what's going on outside of us and we're blaming the devil for this and this person for that. And we never stop to ask the question, could there possibly be a leak somewhere in my life? So we're going to talk about filling the holes in your life. All right. And here's what we mean by that. God is a God of order. Talk about that for a couple of minutes. God is a God of order. He ordained order from His creation. Everything God does, He does in order. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What is visible. The words framed there literally mean in the Greek to set in order or to arrange. God did such a good job of setting it in order that our scientists use the stars, and now they use the pulsing of an atom. is so precise, they get the measure of our time from that. That's what atomic clocks are. I don't fully understand that other than they, 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 they pulsate at such a regular, pre- predictable, orderly intervals that they can literally base our time on it. We don't do much of this that much anymore, although we've just landed some kind of rocket probe on Mars. And that thing went off years ago, what, five or six years ago? How did they know where Mars was going to be five or six years from now? Because Mars isn't just sitting out there and it's like shooting a gun at it. It's orbiting around the sun, and we're orbiting around the sun, and not in the same orbit. Different size orbits, different speeds, and yet they were able to launch that rocket, whatever, it's five or six years ago, aim its trajectory knowing that in a pointed time it was going to land on a specific spot on that planet six years later or whatever it was. How could it do that? Because there had to be precision in the orbits of those planets. God is a God of order. Let's talk about order among men, what he's done in Numbers 2. Now, we like order when it's everybody else. (laughs) This is the story of God 
marching the settling the children of Israel after they come they come out of Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt. They've come into the into the into the wilderness. God's brought them down by Mount Sinai, calls Moses up on the mountain. One of the things God does on the mountain, he gives him the Ten Commandments. He also brings him back up, and he gives him instructions to build a church. Well, it's a tabernacle. It's a, series, it's a tent. It's a worship place. We have a course in School of Ministry on the tabernacle. I have a book I've written. It's in the bookstore on the tabernacle, understanding why it's relevant to us today. It's extremely relevant to us today. In fact, you, you can't truly understand... Well, let's put it this way you will get a much deeper understanding of your salvation today when you have an understanding of that tabernacle because it was intended to instruct us on what our salvation is, what it is. And so God instructs Moses and gives him infinite detail of what to do. Then when it's constructed, and this is what Numbers 2 is about, he's telling them where the families and the tribes are to camp. So, verse, he says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard, that's his own flag, besides the emblem of his father's house, and they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of the meeting, which is the tent. This tent, this church, was in the middle of the camp. On the east side, towards the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces of Judah shall camp according to their armies. And Nishan, the son of Abinadab, and he goes down and he breaks down the family of Judah. Then he goes in verse 5 and he says, And next to him will be the tribe of Issachar. And he then breaks that down. And then down in verse 7, then comes the tribe of Zebulun. And then he breaks that one down. Verse 10, on the south side shall be... Basically, he's taking the 12 tribes of Israel and assigning them where they're to put their tents. Imagine that, God telling them where to live. (gasps) Who does he think he is? God? He had an order that he wanted for this camp. He wanted them settled here. He wanted Judah here. He wanted Zebulun here. He wanted Natalie here. He wanted, and he told them all, by, by, first of all, by tribes, then by families. Now, let's go over now to chapter 10. Now they're going to get ready to march. Verse 13. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And the standard of the camp of Judah was set out first among their armies and over their armies. So I don't have the time to go through it. Go down to verse 28. And thus was the order of the march of the children of Israel according to their armies which they began their journey. So God told them, it was like children in, 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 it's neat to go through, come here at lunchtime and see the kids from the school coming down to go to the lunchroom over here, especially the kindergartners. You know, they're standing along the side, and I usually am coming through, and they're standing like this, you know. And they're trying to stand still, but they're in order. The teacher doesn't say, all right, lunchtime, and there's just a mad rush down there. They actually walk in order. They don't march, but they walk in order. An orderly fashion. The interesting thing is I have heard testimonies from our fire department and our police department when they've come here for special events, especially the fire department. They'll come here to do fire alarm, fire drills. And they've said, we love coming to this school because your children are so respectful and orderly. It shows. But the point here is God does things in order. So he has, and what is an order? It's a pre-planned pattern. And he's decided it. So it's his order. So he didn't say, all right, Israel, we're going to get going. Let's get up and get moving. You can walk wherever you want. He said, no, no, you go here, you go here, you go here, and you go here. Why? I don't know. He's God. We don't, see, when you, when you follow orders, you don't need to know why. God very rarely expects us to understand the why of something. What He does expect us to do is obey Him. Because when we obey Him, the why is up to Him. All right, just ask, just ask Adam. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. 
Let's bring this into the New Testament a little bit. We're just establishing that God does things in order. Let's bring it into a, a New Testament church. That's an Old Testament church. Now, this is a spirit-filled church we're going to look at. We're not talking about, you know, everybody sits like this, you know, the frozen chosen. This is, I mean, the Spirit of God's moving freely and openly here. But there's a problem. Paul talks here about the gifts of the Spirit, really, in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So I thought chapter 12, 13 is the love chapter, but it's all about the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. Basically, it says, if you don't operate in the gifts motivated by love, it counts as nothing. And chapter 4 picks up on several of the specific gifts, tongues and prophecy and interpretation of tongues. But we're going to go down to verse, let's look, start looking in verse 26. Talking about how they operate. Because what was happening is they were so full of the Spirit, they thought, that they would get up in the middle of a service and one would prophesy over here, one would give an interpretation over here, one would stand up and give a tongue over here, one would stand up and say something over here, and it was confusion. They may have had a wonderful time, but nobody got edified. I've been in some of those services. And we're going to see God's purpose in a service is edification. The building up, strengthening, informing. Because when you go out of here, if you've just had the wonderful experience, it's a wonderful experience that will fade. And there are times we need things like that. But if that's what the steady diet is, it's like a child having dessert all the time, but never eating their peas and the lime. Oh, yeah, thank him. I actually had Brussels sprouts the other day and enjoyed it. And, and, and it's not the things that are good for us that help us to grow strong and healthy. All right? You with me? Some of you are. Okay. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation, but let all things be done for edification? The gifts of the Spirit are legitimate, they're real, we should have them. But he said they're to be done for the purpose of building each other up, not just exercising our gifts. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, let him speak to himself and to God, because it's not going to do anybody else any good. Let two or three prophets speak, that doesn't mean they're a prophet, prophet, that means they're prophesying. And let others judge, but if anything is revealed to another who sits, let the first keep silent. In other words, if somebody else is saying what you've already got, keep your mouth shut. For you can all prophesy one by one, and all may learn, and all may be encouraged. This, this is the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophet. In other words, gifts of the spirit are subject to you. But I have to... No, you don't. No, you don't. They're subject. Look at this. This is the whole purpose. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So let your women keep silent. I'm not going to that one right now. Because what was happening is they sat, they didn't sit together like that. You had the women sat on one side and the men sat on the other. And Tradition was telling us, some of the historians tell us, that the woman would stand up and say something to her husband over here or ask a question back and forth. And so he's saying, wait till you get home. <laughs> All right. Now let's go down. Verse 37. But if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual... I mean, I had my wife preach last... Was the anointing here? So I guess in God's eyes it was okay. All right. Out of stupidity we've excluded so much of the church from gifts that God had. If anyone thinks to me, prophet, prophet, verse 37, or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write to you are commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and not to begin speaking in tongues. Look at verse 40. I build all of this. Let all things be done decently and in order. So God has an order. And here's the point of all this. When we get outside of His order, we become exposed. Proverbs 26, 1 and 2. As the snow in summer and the rain in harvest, 
so honor is not fitting for a fool. Let a, like a flittering sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. The image there is a, a bird sitting on a branch, and if you make a sudden movement, it flies off. But it doesn't fly off for no reason at all, usually. He said, for the same reason, a curse does not alight unless there's some cause. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that goes wrong in your life was caused by something you did wrong. We're talking about the waves breaking over the boat, but also there may be a hole in your hull. So all the point tonight is don't assume that because there's water in your boat, it's from the wave that broke over the bow. You may need to go check whether or not the water keeps coming in because there might be a hole somewhere in your hull. We're going to talk about what those could be in a couple of minutes. I want to give you an example of this because you don't hear a lot about this. Let's go to 1 Chronicles 13. Now what's happened is the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. David has now been anointed to be a king, at least over Hebron. And one of the first things he wants to do is he wants to go and get the Ark. The Philistines found out it wasn't a blessing to keep it among them because they kept breaking out in boils and, and, and plagues. And so they got they figured the ark, this Ark's the problem because what it was was that Ark was ordained by God to be at the, the, the location of His presence among His people. And when the, when the people of Israel stopped worshiping the God of the ark, and they started worshiping the ark of the God, he left. I'll say that again. God's plan was that they worship the God of the ark. But they started worshiping the ark that God gave them. So then they started worshiping the box instead of the God who gave them the box so he could dwell among them. You following me? And when he did, they left. They took the ark. The ark was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines found out that they were not ordained by God to have it. And so what happened is curses broke out. So they figured out quickly, we need to get rid of that thing. So they made golden boils to represent the boils that are broken out of them. And they got rid of the ark. They gave it back to the Israelites and it sat for a while. David's now coming to bring it back. Now, you'll need some background here. Okay. Verse 3. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we've not inquired of it since the days of Saul. Then all the assemblies said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So when the people voted with David, this is what we need to do. Then all the assemblies said they would do so, for the thing was right. Okay, David, verse 5, gathered all of Israel together for Sharon in, in Egypt, as far as the entry. So all the people of Israel gathered together, and David, all of Israel, went up to Baal, to kirath Jerah, to, and belonged to Judah, to bring from there the ark of the cover, God, the Lord, which dwells between the cherubim, where his name was proclaimed. So they got his big, all Israel's come out to receive the ark back again. Time of great celebration. You'd think God would be honored by that. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart, from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah in Ohio, Ohio, drove the cart. Now, understand what's going on here. When God gave Moses instructions to build the tabernacle with the ark in it, there was an order to it. And part of that order was God assigned the tribe of Levi as to be the... Tri- they didn't have a tent because they were assigned the responsibility to manage and take care of the tabernacle and all of the utensils in it. And each of them had an assignment. Each of the, the three major tri- families of, of Levi, each had a major assignment. One of those was assigned the responsibility for transporting the ark. Second thing, the ark represented the presence of God. It was never to be carried by something that God did not make directly himself. So it was instructed to be carried on poles on men's shoulders and he had assigned which men were to do it because which of the one of the, I forgot which one of them, either Merari or Gershon, one of the families of Levi was assigned to carry it. And the idea was God did not want anything holy that he'd made being carried or handled by something else he didn't make. He made the men that carried the ark. He didn't make this cart. 
That's why God also said, you are never to work, you can worship me on, on an altar made on the dirt, or you can worship me on an altar made of stone, but never on an altar made of stone that's been cut by man's hands. Why, man has now had something to do with forming it, and you can't worship me on something that you contributed to also. Well, God loves... Well, but He had a way of doing it. Now, with that understanding, let's look what happens. They're intense, right? So, well, God looks on the heart. Yeah, He does. Their heart was right. But God had an order. And they knew the order. David knew it. But they'd gotten lax about it. Verse 8, David and all of Israel played music before God in all their might, singing with harps on strings instruments, on tabernacles and cymbals with trumpets. And they came to children's threshing floor, and Uzzah put his hand out to hold the ark, for the oxen had stumbled. So what's happened is they got the, ox, they got the, the ark, big gold box, on the, on the cart, because it's easier than carrying it on men's shoulders. That's another message. And it's going along, and the ox stumbles, and the ark starts to slip off. So Uzzah trying to save the ark, reaches out and touches it to hold it from hitting the ground. What could be wrong with that? Verse 10, And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he's put his hand on the ark, and he died before God. Now, I don't believe that lightning came down from heaven. He stepped out, he touched a holy thing in a way God had not ordained, And since he was not holy himself, that righteousness killed him. Just like righteousness and unrighteousness together, one of them is going to prevail, just like light and darkness. You've heard me teach this before. When they came in this room tonight to start, it was dark in here. They did not go turn off the dark switch and on the light switch. You don't need a dark switch because dark's what happens when the light goes out. And when the light comes on, the darkness goes away because the light is more powerful than the darkness. Righteousness and holiness are infinitely more powerful than unrighteousness and disobedience. They cannot dwell together. So if they come in presence of each other, one of them is going to die and it's not going to be righteousness. And that's what happened here. The reason is Uzzah was not of the family God had ordered and ordained to touch the ark. So here they are trying to do a good thing, but not God's way. And the church today, so much of the church says, well, I'm trying to do good things, but they don't care about doing it God's way. So we excuse what we do because our heart's right. And God will, God will forgive you and is merciful. But if you go out in the rain without an umbrella, no matter how merciful God is, you'll get wet. You go out tonight on 195 on your way home and you don't look, you just drive out in traffic, you may well get hit and we may all have to go somewhere tomorrow we don't want to go to your funeral. Not because God hates you or is angry at you, because you put yourself in a place where you know better that you could get hurt. Now let's go to chapter 15. David now, in the middle, David gets mad. He gets really upset. Look at verse 11. And David became angry, still in verse 13, chapter 13. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. Therefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring this ark, the ark of God to me? In other words, he's mad. He doesn't understand. Wait a minute. He's mad at God. And that's where a lot of Christians are. They're mad at God for what's going on in their life and have not ever stopped to examine whether their life lines up with what they know God has ordained. Because we think we can live one, because we live in grace. But grace is what got you saved. 
Grace is what gives you the ability to do what you need to do. But grace is not something we can just go and do what we want to with. That's presuming on God. God has an order. When we get outside, it's not to live in fear, but live in wise. If something's going wrong, maybe I need to look in the hull. Maybe I need to go down in the, in the, inside the boat, down underneath, and look in the hull and see if the water's coming in there. He gets mad, and he wouldn't move the ark. He put it in Obadiah's garage. And it says in verse 14, And the Lord blessed Obadiah. Now in 15, David's got wise. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, pitched a tent for it. And then David said, look at verse 2, No one may carry the ark but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before Him forever. Look at verse 13. Because you did not do this at the first time, the Lord your God broke out against us because we did not consult Him, look at this, about the proper order. Well, that's the Old Testament. We're in a new covenant. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse we read every month, just about. And you don't hear this one preached very often. Now this, of course, is what we read at communion time. But understand this, the Apostle Paul did not write these words to give them instructions on how to receive communion. He wrote these words to correct them because the attitude with which they were receiving communion was wrong. I'll say that again. This is not just a manual on how to receive communion. It involves that. But he wrote this as a correction to the same Spirit-filled church because the way they were receiving communion, the attitude that they had in their heart about communion was wrong. And he was correcting the attitude of their heart. You with me? All right. Let's look in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he's talking about the attitude and the respect and reverence for what they're doing. Because what they were doing is they were coming together for like a potluck. What their view is just, hey, we're going to eat together. So you had some over here that shared their bread and their drink and everything else, and some of them got drunk, and others over here didn't have enough food. Because they saw it as a potluck, not as sharing the Lord's table together. That's what he's talking about. Whoever drinks this bread, whoever eats this bread, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, doesn't mean they weren't worthy, because none of us are. That's why he did what he did. He's talking about the attitude we have towards that ceremony. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lamb. But let a man examine his hull, I mean himself, the hull of the boat. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now this is New Testament. Judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not reverencing that this represents the Lord's body. That doesn't mean we got to go through rituals that if we drop a piece of the bread on the ground, we got to go through some... It's, it's not talking, talking about this attitude in here. Just casually popping it in our mouth like we're just going to eat, a, you know, eat something somewhere. Without reverence. For this is remembering what He did for us and the price He paid for us. Look at verse 30. For this reason, now we're New Testament here, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You look in the margin, that means died. Oh, but this is New Testament. This is under grace. But this is 
in Ephesians 4.27, it says, don't give place to the enemy. That means it's possible. He can't take it, but it's possible for me to give him place. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many die. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged by Him, in other words. For when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we would not be condemned with the world. In other words, if we judge ourselves, He won't have to judge us. This is a privilege they didn't have in the Old Testament. This is what His blood brought for, bought for us. The privilege to examine ourselves, check our hull to see if there are leaks. And then if we find them, to judge ourselves, that plugs the leak. Well, when we, when we change the attitude, that's what plugs the leak. We have that privilege of doing it for ourselves. Then he goes on and says, but if we are judged, in other words, if God has to judge us, we are chastened by the Lord. That's a term used of a father chastening his son. Romans, uh, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 12 talks about that. That we may not be condemned with the world. So if you don't judge yourself, God will chasten you to awake you so that you don't get condemned with the world. In other words, He'll spank you. Out of love. You don't hear a lot of that in faith churches, do you? Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. For if one is hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, don't eat because you're hungry. Let us come to, lest you come together for judgment and the rest I'll set, oh, in order when I come. Now the purpose of this is not to give us an explanation of communion. It's to show us that when we get something out of God's order, we expose ourselves to the enemy. God's not coming in making them sick. and They're exposing themselves. Don't turn there, but if you go to, to Acts chapter, I think it's 5, is the story of a man and woman who came to bring an offering. We want the presence of God. A man and a woman came to bring an offering to God, and they lied about that it was the whole amount they sold their house for. And he dropped dead on the spot. Spirit-filled, born again, probably tongue-talking Christian. They take him off to bury him, and his wife shows up a few hours later. Now, you've got to know the fear of God was there because she didn't know what happened to her husband. She walks in. Peter asks the same question. How much did you sell the house for? Oh, we sold it for this much. And how much are you giving? We're giving everything. It wasn't what they gave. It was they lied about what they gave to God. And she dropped dead. Now, the interesting thing, and John Brevere, who will be here next month, I heard him teach this. He says... At the door of the temple, the high priest Eli's sons were committing fornication on the doorway to the temple, and nothing happened. Why? Because God's presence wasn't there. We want the presence of God, don't we? We want the, we want the power of God, the presence of God, but that presence brings a holiness. And what I know of the church today, and I'm not thinking of you or me or this church in particular, we're not ready for that. There has to be a revival in the church before God can inhabit us. So we can sing all the praise songs we want, but if we have holes in the hull, if there's unrighteousness in our life, if things are out of God's order, then it doesn't matter what we sing, it's what we do. Well, what is that order? Well, I'm just going to cover a couple real basic things, and this gets into what we talked about before. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's not hard. It's not complicated. God doesn't have 1,400 rules. The Old Testament, they only had 10. Now, the Pharisees built it into 614 or something like that, but God gave them 10 basic rules. Jesus in the New Testament reduced it to two. So there's only two things to remember. God showed me this in terms of of raising our children. He said, son, what what you need to do is you need to establish rules for the house. 
that you're going to enforce. So when you pick a rule, make sure it's one you're going to enforce. Don't pick something you know you won't enforce every time. So pick, and you don't need a bunch of them, because if you enforce the rules you have, they'll listen to the rest of it. He says, and then write them down. Put them on the refrigerator so that everybody can see what the rules are and show them these are the rules. You don't talk back to your parents. You don't lie. Just some real basic, simple, profound things. And for these, you get a spanking. Real simple. When they violate one, you bring them over and you show them the rule they violated. And then you minister the love of God where God designed your body to receive the love. So he said, you don't need many, you just need a few. Real basic things, because if they do those things, they'll follow the rest of the things you do. So God took it from ten and reduced it to just two. We've got to be able to remember two. So let's talk about, when, and we're going to get into the first one, which is in a, in a, in a particular context here. Okay. Now he's talking here about the, the pressures of life. And he's saying here, you know, you know verse uh, uh, talks about how we pray, starting in verse 5. Don't pray the way the Gentiles pray because they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Um, uh, verse 7, he says that. He says, don't, therefore, verse 8, don't be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. So he's talking about what you have need of. Anybody here have need of something? He's talking to you. But pray in this manner. And he, doesn't say, he doesn't say repeat this prayer. He says, pray in this manner. Nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer, but it's the manner of the prayer that he's talking about. It's the confidence. It's the boldness. Notice the focus of this prayer is on who God is and what God's done first. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Then he gets into forgiveness. We talked about that last time. Verse 14. And then he talks about the attitudes of fasting and praying. Then he talks about, from verse 19 on, he's talking about our heart. What's the treasure of our heart? And he sums it all up in this. Well, let me get into something, he says. This is very interesting, because we've got a moment here. He says, therefore, when you... Uh, blah, 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 verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's not saying you can't have treasures. He's, the treasures he's talking about are something else. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and nor thieves nor break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there is where your heart will be also. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about what your heart is invested in. And he says, what is your treasure? What is important to you, what is valuable to you is what you put your heart in. Then he goes into verse twenty. 2 and 23, in this strange discussion, he says, if the, the lamp, of the, body, lamp of the body is the eye, if therefore the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if there is light in you, you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I used to read this at, what? How can the light in me be darkness? And so I just, this little bit of, of advice, I just asked him, What's it mean? I mean, the author lives in me. I just, and you know what he told me? The key is in this. What he's saying here, the lamp of the body is the eye. What's a lamp? It's what shines the light. It's the source of light. So the way light gets into your physical body is through your eye, right? Because if you close your eye or if you lose your eyesight, no light's getting in. In the same way, your heart is the opening for spiritual light to get in you. You following me? So then he goes into verse 23 and he says, if your eye is bad, that word means diseased. Now it makes more sense. If your eye is diseased, then your whole body will be full of darkness. It doesn't mean that there's no light getting in, but if your eye is diseased, light that's coming in isn't accurate. If you wear glasses, you know what I'm talking about. Take them off and try to see me. If, you have, if you're nearsighted, you need your glasses. Why? Because there's light coming in your eyes, 
but because your eye is moved, changed shape a little bit, that light is distorted and it's not accurate anymore. So it's as if that light is to you darkness, even though light's getting in. Are you following me? So light's getting in your eye, but it's as if there's darkness because you can't rely on it until you correct the vision so that the light that's coming in is accurate. In the same way, now verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other or be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So now what he's talking about is when the things of this world, and he gets on to worrying. When you're worrying about what you're going to wear and you're worrying about what you eat, what's happened is you've given your heart over to care about these things beyond the level that you need to. So they now take a place in your heart that's above God. And when anything takes a place in your heart that's above God's place in your heart, then that's the same as if your eye is distorted because you'll begin to see things, but you will not see them spiritually accurate. And that's what happens. We start worrying about what am I going to eat? Where is my next meal going to come from? How am I going to pay the mortgage? I'm going to lose the house. This is all going to happen. We get all worked up and then try to pick your Bible up and read it. Try to pray then. You may pray, but you're going through routines. It's not coming out of here. Why? Because we're so consumed with worry that we can't hear God, who's the one we need to hear when we're in trouble. And when we worry, what we're saying is, I don't believe God can take care of it. So what's God's answer to this? What's the correction to the vision? So that light can accurately get in, it's verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we forget that part, And all these things, which are what you need, will be added unto you. So the first place to look in your hole, to see if water's coming in through a hole, is to check your heart and where, what place is God in your, oh, I love God, I love God with all my heart. All right, here's the test of that according to the Bible. Are you worrying? Because if you're worrying, He's not first. I didn't say it, He said it. If you're worrying, that's not being careful and concerned and planning. He's not saying be irresponsible. You know what worry is. You can't sleep at night. Your palms are sweaty. You can't think clearly. You're in fear. All of those things tell me according to God's test of the hull. There are some things, and I don't know much about boat hulls. We've got some people here that do. But, but I know there's ways that they can now scientifically test whether there's weaknesses in certain structures that you can't see with your eye. This is God's x-ray of the heart. Because he says you can't serve, that means you can't have your heart committed over to God and things. I I didn't write it, so don't look at me that way. (laughs) I mean, I've got to work with this myself. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What does that mean? That means I've got to see God as my source. We don't have time tonight to go through it, but I could go through story, three definite stories. See, sometimes people say, well, you were a lawyer before. You've never had financial troubles. Oh, yeah. We've gone broke three times. Not because God failed me, not because she'd failed me, because I made some stupid choices early on. You'd think after once I'd have learned something. Oh, I got quiet in here. We've been in a place where I didn't know where the food was coming from, and we had two babies, twin boys, just born, and I didn't know how we were going to pay for them. I mean, the doctor. Because I made some stupid decisions as a young Christian. Threw my brain out and decided to be spiritual. But I had learned something early on. And I don't know even how other than I know it was God. I learned one simple principle early on. 
that God was my source. It was one thing when God was my source and I was a senior associate in a large law firm in Boston making two and a half times what we spent each month. It was another thing when we went from two children to four children, had no job, and lived halfway across the country and had no relatives or friends and no money. And you know what? He was just as much our source then as he was when I had the money. But I learned an important lesson. It wasn't the law firm, and it wasn't the family, and it was God was my source. He used different means to provide for me, but he was my source. And so even in the middle of literally having nothing, I never panicked. Oh, I had times when I was really tempted to, but I would come back to that point I learned, God, it's in your hands. You're my, I don't know how you're going to do it, and I don't have time tonight to tell you the supernatural ways that God provided for us, got us out of debt, delivered us from it, and he did that more than once. He had mercy on my stupidity. I share that with you tonight, and we've got others in here that can share similar testimonies. If you put God first, then he's responsible for you. When you figure out what you're going to do on your own and try to include him in it, then you're responsible for what you're going to do. Down the road on Sunday mornings, I'm going to teach on sowing and reaping. And I found some testimonies by famous men, wealthy men, of how they made their millions by tithing. The number one among them that I have is John D. Rockefeller Sr., When he was a boy and made his first dollar and ten cents, I think it was, his mother made him tithe off of it. He tithed off of every penny he made. And he said, I am convinced that if I didn't tithe off of that first dollar ten, I would not have tithed off of my first million. There are things God gives us to do to test and hear where he is. And one of the areas he'll do that is in money. Second thing, because I want to give this to you and we'll close then. Oh, we've got to close. The second thing is we are commanded to walk in love. We're not asked to. We're not suggested to. We're commanded to. That commandment has the same authority behind it as God's commandment that they should not carry the ark on a cart. The first place I check in my life is whether I'm walking in love. Brother Hagen, when he was alive with that ministry, the finances started getting tight. I told some of the staff that this week. He would walk around praying in the Spirit through the hallways in front of every office until God showed him where the strife was. Strife opens a door to the enemy. The verse I quoted to you, Ephesians 4.27, which says, give no place to the enemy, is right in the middle of scriptures talking about strife and holding grudges against one another. The most dangerous thing you can do is to step out of love. There's nothing worth it. Because to do that, you expose yourself to the enemy. And we kind of dismiss, well, I know I'm supposed to walk. No, you're commanded to. So we have an attitude that these are things we, there, there are good things to do. No, we're commanded to. And when we break a commandment, God will forgive us. This is not between God and me about that part of it. We stick my head out the window so the devil can shoot at me. One of the main reasons I've seen of... of that's not every reason, because another water comes over the side of the boat. But one of the reasons, I, first things I look at in a marriage, when money gets tight, is how's your marriage? Is there division in the family? Are things out of order? And that's the point. When we get out of God's order, we become exposed to the curse that's out there in the world. Now, the enemy can fight you, 
Again, the storms can buffet you, but the only way it can really get into you and hurt you is when you open the door and let it in. The curse, causeless, will not come. Let's pray. Father, we've heard your word tonight. And many of us, Lord, are facing difficult challenges and things. We pray, first of all, that no one leave here tonight condemned. For nothing that we read tonight was in any way intended to condemn, and your word does not condemn us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you're a loving Father, and you lay out the principles by which your kingdom operates. And you are a God of order. And you do not bend that order nor change that order for any of us because that order is for our benefit and for our protection. I pray for everyone in this room tonight that's going through a challenge. That you would give them discernment to be able to discern whether there's anything in their life, Father, that's exposing themselves to the work of the enemy. Again, without fear, condemnation. And Father, most likely these are things that you've already been trying to show them all along. But they may not have realized that there was a price attached to the disobedience. We may not have seen it as disobedience. We may have seen it as, well, I'll get to that someday. I'll get to that. I'll get to that. And our lives are out of order. Father, open our eyes to see where we're out of order. By the gentleness and firmness of your spirit, may you bring correction to each of us that needs it. May you give us the grace and the strength to not only repent, but to bring that change into our lives so that we may go on with you to the victory that you have planned for us. For that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.